Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations with the intention of demystifying, destigmatizing, and desensitizing what really gets talked about behind the closed doors of the therapy room. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Selkin. And we're seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. So join us as we dive into the ways that therapy can be connecting not only to yourself, but also to those around you. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Today's guest is somebody who we were excited to kind of dive in and pick her brain. She is a wealth of knowledge. She's got a ton of background in coaching families and parents, and she just talks so much about, I think, what Danae and I go deeper in with clients um, around kind of family dynamics and how upbringing can contribute to so much of what we face as adults and then what we kind of pass on and pass down to our children. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I, I just, she puts so many things into words and a perspective that I just thought were so like easy to digest that I feel like everybody's going to really resonate with. Yeah. I love that she sort of offers parents tangible tools. And I, I feel like for us, you know, like we're therapists, so we sort of can put a lot of pressure on ourselves as parents, mm-hmm. certainly like this is the way we should be doing it to sort of avoid X. And, you know, I love how she sort of speaks to, this is how you can sort of meet your children in a way where you are seeing them as people. And it just sort of, um, I don't know, for me, took some of the pressure off of you know, you have to do this perfectly, but mm-hmm. here's a way you can do this and also meet your children where they are in an appropriate developmental way. Um, it just felt really helpful. Right. And I, and I think I even said this, I think in the, in the episode, but I feel like some of this stuff that she speaks to also can be taken and used, you know, with other relationships. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. it just is about parents and, and children and that dynamic. So I think that, um, you know, if you're not a parent, then I think you can still get a lot out of this episode and a lot out of what she says and out of her work. So, you know, I hope you listen and enjoy as well. So Absolutely. this is Catherine Winter Celery, and we hope you guys enjoy. Vanessa and I are so excited today for our guest. We have Catherine Winter Celery with us. And Catherine is founder of Conscious Parenting Revolution and just someone that Vanessa and I have been tuning into her TED Talks and we're just so excited to talk to you. It's so fabulous to be here. I'm so excited. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I think the thing that today and I found the most interesting as two new parents, I mean, she has a three-year-old, I have a six-month-old, is really, yeah, the way that you seem to be trying to change the conversation about parenting, Mm. right? Um, And so obviously that's interesting to us. (laughs) We're certainly like ready to pick your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I love the fact that you're new moms and Mm. that you're interested and, you know, I just love to support new moms, new dads, and mm-hmm. people even thinking about having children that can sometimes be daunting mm-hmm. since we've never had any training, right? Mm-hmm. We've gotten right. training for so many other jobs in our life, but not this one. <laughs> well, and, you know, as therapists, we talk so much with our clients about, you know, intergenerational trauma yeah. and family systems and how yeah. these things work and play into our adult lives. And, you know, when you say we don't have any training, I mean, we did, but it came from our parents, right? right. And so came true. From parents, yeah. So yeah. There were no professionals. 
Right. And you know, it's so funny. I've had so many therapists take my class over the years and mm -hmm. you know, they feel, I think, particularly guilty, if you will, mm -hmm. since they're so effective at helping other families, other people, and they think, why can I do so much supporting for other people? And I'm having these troubles myself. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's so powerful. And I feel like a lot of times we feel like an added level of pressure because exactly. we're sort of dealing with the aftermath of what people have experienced based on their family of origin. And so we're like, ah, I don't want to screw this up. But it feels yeah, like. But, yeah. you know, for therapists, once it's your own feelings that are in, in, in the mix, it's sort of a whole different experience. It's not like you get to be the observer of someone else's experience and support mm -hmm. them through it. Now, now it's yours. And right. Well, and to be clear, thing. right? People always look at us like we've got our shit together. Let's be real. We don't. <laughs> None totally. Of us do, right? Yeah. And you do. Of course you do. And you also don't. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I love um, Elizabeth Lesser always says like, we're all just bozos on the bus, just sort of trudging our way through this life, doing the best we can. Totally. And I think, yeah, exactly. Certainly motherhood is like the most beautiful reminder mm. of that fact. Mm. Yeah, it brings us all back to, you know, the proverbial leveler mm. is that we're all struggling to be with our feelings in ways that are constructive. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay. You know, I'd love to hear, Catherine, just, um, you know, we've obviously, we're aware of your work and we've watched your TED Talks and all the things, but for those listening, you know, could you give us a little background on kind of how you came to be interested in this topic, how you, um, you know, I know your training has been a little bit, uh, you know, non-traditional in the sense, obviously us, you know, going the whole route, like through therapy school and all the things. I know yours was more kind of a personal spiritual journey, but I just love to hear it, you know, from your words. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so... I, I truly, I, I don't even know what to say. I think that mm -hmm. this path came to me mm -hmm. and, you know, it wasn't when I started out, it wasn't like I grew up thinking, oh, I'm going to become a coach. I'm going to support parents. It never even crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. um, I had a very different trajectory in life. I was in law school. I was going a very certain route. I was doing really well in that world and had suffered personal tragedies. Mm -hmm. And my brother had taken his life by suicide when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And that could have been, you know, the opening to a spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. However, it wasn't for me. It was a double down and become even more, um, you know, of an overachiever. Mm -hmm. So that was like, everybody plays roles in families. And mine was to, you know, just make mom and dad feel okay about themselves. And I'll do it through accomplishment and achievement. And, and so I just doubled down on that route. And um, I guess probably just numbed myself. There was no spirit in the family of we can work through this and let's talk about how everybody's feeling and grief is a process and let's support each other. You know, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I had, um, I actually was on semester at sea when I was in college and I was really drawn to the Far East. No I did it too. <laughs> yeah. One of my best experiences. China came into my sphere. Mm. And I went back and studied Chinese as a language in university. And then I mm. was hired and I moved to China and um, got better and better at speaking Chinese and more and more integrated in the culture and loved loving that country, those people, and that experience. And then my sister had a brain tumor and I came back to the United States. And um, of course, I couldn't just be. I had to go, okay, well now I'll go back to, I'll go to law school because I'd already been accepted and 
So I went to law school and started that journey. And at the end of my second year, she transitioned. Mm-hmm. And that one just, that knocked me over. Mm-hmm. So I would say like all the things I wasn't really paying attention to. And I was just like, you know, going ahead of it and, you know, all that kind of stuff just slayed me. Mm-hmm. And um, I was in the top third of my class. I was definitely on a road. I had a great summer, you know, job. And I just pulled out. I pulled out and I moved to this little tiny town called Netherland outside of Boulder. Mm-hmm. And I lived in a little cabin and I did chop wood, carry water for a while mm-hmm. and started a course in miracles and happened to be living in a cabin of a guy that had studied with a guy named Alan Watts. If you're familiar with him, mm-hmm. he was yes. sort of the leader of the human potential movement. Mm-hmm. And I was in Alan Watts fishbowl, literally everything he'd ever written um, everything he'd ever spoken, every recording he'd ever done, this guy had it. Mm-hmm. And so I got to bathe in Alan Watts for a while, do the course, and just that opened up a whole new vista for me mm-hmm. and my healing process and um, my connection to myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, you know, I look back on it and I think it was the most beautiful journey. I thank my sister regularly for having opened up that to me. Mm -hmm. and giving me the chance to tune in um, and grow and heal. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really magical. Mm -hmm. It's a really magical time in my life. And it set the tone for me going forward. And it wasn't till I had my own son, who's now 25. So I'm a much older mom than you guys. And at two years old, I was a deer in headlights. Mm. At that stage, I was a commodities trader, by the way. So I was trading commodities. Wow. We were an American Metals Trading Company and running their Hong Kong offices. My husband's an architect, and we were both professionals mm-hmm. doing really well in our fields. And then there's this human, like this small human. And we're completely flummoxed. Like, what do we do? Mm. How do we discipline in ways that resonates with our values? Yes. And that began a journey 25 years ago of conflict resolution and mm. approaching um, conflicts, because we have to meet them. We can't pretend they're not there. Right. And yet I wasn't comfortable with rewards and punishments. And this idea just never fit inside of me very well. So I had to keep looking. Mm-hmm. So that set me on another path that's been my passion for mm. a quarter of a century. Wow, I love it so much. I feel curious about your birth order in your family, Catherine, because you're sort I of know. talking about like that. Right? Achieve You'd verbal. think I was number one, but I'm actually the youngest. Are you? That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated. And I love yeah. how you sort of speak to, you know, that there are different ways that we can numb, right? And sometimes achievement becomes a form of numbing and a form mm-hmm. of like, I'm totally. not going to sit in the space of the feelings. I'm just going to keep going to the next thing and the next yeah. thing. I think it's a very popular approach. <laughs> right. Yeah, Absolutely. I do a lot of work and a lot of teaching on codependency. And yes. it's fascinating to me. I, I truly believe that almost every human on this planet has codependent behavioral, like some kind I do of too. Yeah, I do too. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm so lovely to hear that you do all that work because boy, howdy, that's really important work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you grow up in a codependent family, the last thing they're allowed, allowing anyone to do is separate and individuate. Right. Like that's just not okay. <laughs> Right. And, yes. and what's funny is that, you know, as you know, I was the oldest, also the achiever. Um, and rat, like I, I got out 
right? So it was like at 18, I was like, I'm gone. I went to school and I kind of never looked back. Like I never wanted mm-hmm. to. I found myself after the fact realizing that I had put distance between myself and my kind of family of origin, right? In order to, to do that individuation, but I hadn't done the work. Mm-hmm. That is so great you say that. So, yeah. I mean, I literally moved halfway around the globe. So mm-hmm. I moved to Hong Kong in 1989 and never came back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was about as far on planet Earth as one can go. And yet, um, it still wasn't far enough because that really mm-hmm. wasn't the issue. It wasn't really about right. the physical proximity. Although, honestly, I'm sure it created a little bit more space for me to be mm-hmm. able to handle um, the dysfunctional communication patterns that had me always, you know, wound up inside mm-hmm. that it did supply that, but mm-hmm. no, it didn't do any of the actual work that actually. Well, and I think that's actually a really good point to put out there, Catherine, is that, you know, I think I hear that a lot um, with clients, right? It's, there's this thought that if I separate myself physically, that that in itself is kind of enough, right? Um, when you have some sort of, I don't want to, it doesn't always have to be a really dramatically traumatic childhood, but just everybody has, you know, I don't know, everybody struggles with their, with their parent relationship at some point in their lives, I would say, actually. Um, and, and I think that sometimes people think, yeah, that like distance is enough. And, and I don't think that that's the case. <laughs> it's yeah. not enough. It, it might help, though. Right. You know, it might be able to be like just a Band-Aid that gives mm-hmm. you a little more, you know, a little more oxygen yep. so that can support the nervous system relaxing a little bit and right. creating the internal environment enough space to be able to have the ability to turn toward everything as opposed to merge with it. Right. And I think for me, that was like the key sort of like steps along the way was just having a relationship to my internal world mm-hmm. and even acknowledging that I had my own internal world rather than just pushing myself, you know, the loss of the self, of course, is at the core of all of this, mm-hmm. that I had to lose myself in order to please the other people around me or make them happy or not upset them. Uh, and, and I was willing to do that. In fact, I was willing to do it most of my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really wasn't until my mother transitioned mm-hmm. that I'd been carrying Alice Miller's book, The Drama of the Gifted Child for 20 years. It had gone with me everywhere I'd gone. I just never read it. And Mm. it was only after she had passed away that I was going upstairs to get a cup of tea. Mm. And I saw it on the bookshelf. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I'd even quoted it in some of my classes, but I never really sat and read it. Mm -hmm. And I sat and I started to read it. And it's all I did that day. And it was like this major betrayal um, that, Mm. you know, was part of what triggered me to start doing the deeper work around my relationship in a way that I could um, handle it. You know, I couldn't handle it before then because I was still going to uphold, you know, the relationship that I thought she wanted me to have. You know, I want to pause there because Zanae and I, before we got on with you, we were actually talking about this specific point um, that you mentioned because we actually, in our, in our psychology program, it was one of the first books they had us read, like mm. the first semester. Mm. And, uh, and, and for any of you guys listening who don't know, I'll say it again, Alice Miller, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Um, I remember coming back in after reading it and there was like 30 of us, give or take, in our cohort. And I would say 27 of us all kind of raised their hand and was like, I thought this was written about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. so beautiful. And I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why she was so powerful mm-hmm. is mm. that she spoke to the human condition. And that's the thing about, you know, of course, you know, then I 
over the years, I got involved in Codependence Anonymous and CODA mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. I got a therapist. And I remember my therapist and her um, experience of CODA is that she said, the only thing I, I would say about it is that not that it's not powerful, useful and supporting you right now is that it pathologizes the human condition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. I love so that. Yeah. I was like, yes, it took me a while to even get my head around it, honestly. Um, and then as time went by and I had a different relationship to that body of work as well, I went, yeah, yeah, it does pathologize it. And I do have more empathy than um, diagnosis and mm-hmm. a more a sense of it is the human condition. As you mm-hmm. said, who doesn't have this dynamic? Right. right. Yeah, I think that's so profound, Catherine. I, you know, I come from sort of an addiction background and I think, you know, as much as I hold with so much reverence, 12 step work and why we need it and why it is so useful. I think so often um, what I say to clients and what I really hold to be true is, you know, um, are we really talking about what is wrong with you quotes or your pathology, or are we discussing what it means to be human, right? Like all of these ways that our humanity shows up and sort of how we cope with what this thing is of being alive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I loved her, um, I loved her comment, her perspective, and mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've taken it more and more to heart because I, I've experienced myself, I'm sure a lot of people involved in, you know, dealing with their own codependent patterning have also experienced being on the side of someone who's extremely judgmental mm-hmm. about the way that the pattern Uh, may take you over if you're not centered at that stage in your life, or Mm -hmm. there can be a lot of regrets. I certainly have my own of having not had the consciousness or the centeredness then, Mm -hmm. you know, really being whipped around by those patterns at the time. And, you know, I feel like I've gotten the grace of God and a lot of hard work to get over a mountain and Mm -hmm. be in a place where I feel so centered that I can turn toward the patterns, be with them, and allow even more healing from, from my being centered with them to occur. And it wasn't always that way. Right. You know, there were lots of times I like to talk about just feeling like, you know, the waves are pounding me right down, you know, right. I can barely get up. <laughs> Take a breath, right? <laughs> and I look back on those times and I think, oh, wow, you know, talk about wanting a do-over. It'd be great to have a lot of do-overs. And some some and yet the, those, those experiences, those getting pounded to the ground are partly why you are here of now. Of course. Yeah. They are, they are the rocket fuel. Mm, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And, but I do think the pathologizing thing is that if, if others continue to look at it um, without kind of that perspective, it's pathologizing the human condition, there mm. can be judgment. And there can be a, well, I just have to cut you off or, you know, yeah, you are just that way as opposed to no, you know, people can shift and change and we all can feel so empowered knowing that we're bigger than our patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was Harriet Lerner I was listening to the other day meds, said something about, um, you know, so many of us skip the hard work of having the conversation and just mm-hmm. go right to the easy thing, which is to cut the person off. And she was actually speaking to the mother daughter relationship in particular, but she was saying it, you know, for any tough conversation. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, right? Like we think that's actually hard to do is cut somebody off, but, but in her words, like you're actually, yeah, you're actually skipping the hard work. You're actually going to the easy, 
the easy thing. Um, I want to go back a little bit because there's a part in your story that I think is interesting and that I think uh, will resonate for some people um, if we dig in a little bit more, which is this idea that you actually did not go for your own therapeutic work until after your mom passed. And you, you made mention, and you said it a second ago, about this idea that there was kind of some feelings of like betrayal that mm. you had to either work through, take on, right, in order to be able to do that work. And I, I feel like myself, I've experienced that too in doing my personal work, especially when I first started at like 25. Um, and I, I had to have a therapist that would look me in the face and say, you know, look, by getting real and talking about your patterns, your family dynamics, all the things that kind of made you who you are, you're not being a bad daughter. You're not being a bad child, right? Like mm -hmm. your parent can still love you and there's mm -hmm. still things that affected you in this way. And I feel like mm -hmm. in my work with clients, I hear this all the time. It's just like, I don't mm -hmm. want to be a bad child by speaking mm -hmm. poorly. And they, they correct themselves a lot. But, you know, to be clear, they really loved me. To be clear, mm -hmm. they were a good parent. And I, I have to say a lot, like, no one's saying otherwise. Yeah. You know, notice yeah. how you jump in. Like, no one's saying that they're not a good parent. But anyway, I just, yeah. I wanted to kind of bring us back to that point because. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I mean, separation and individuation is at the core of everything I feel is so important in parenting. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I guess I'm, you know, I'm living my contribution, I feel like on the planet, you know, my contribution is to bring this little piece mm -hmm. um, because it was, it was the piece that I know I only through all of my life experience now, I know that was what I was getting my PhD in separation and individuation and yeah. not making that a crime. Mm, um, yeah, and, you know, feeling like it was my fault for how she reacted. That is so powerful. I want to interject <laughs> with a second for a second with something you said in your TED talk that truly just took my breath away, Catherine. You said, everything I have ever done in my life up until then was to make her feel happy, yeah. her feel proud of herself, that she was a good mom, that she was okay, yeah. that she was capable. And you said that your mom said to you, she sort of leaned forward when you said that and said, that is the exact same thing your brother said to me. Yeah. And yet, you know, there was still such a deep idea of betrayal in yeah. individuating and sort of being my own person. And um, yeah. it still was, this is not okay to heal from yeah. this fusion, right? Yeah. And I mean, in the background, I have this like, you know, the mama mm. and this idea of like, I don't know the presence of the matriarch in your family lineage. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's large. Powerful. <laughs> it's a powerful presence. But, you know, I mean, I'm going to say, just don't fuck with me. Right. I mean, there was a, there was a, <laughs> yep. I mean, it was so powerful. My mother, God, was she strong. Yep. And that power, of course, I awe, I was in awe of. Yes. And yep. she was stunning. And mm. she carried a presence. Like she walked in a room and you could hear a pin drop. Mm -hmm. And as a child, one of my older sisters said to me, um, you never took your eyes off her. Mm. You knew where she was every minute. You always tracked her. And of course, later I would understand that better. Um, but I was keeping her safe, little did I know, to be sure that she was being regulated by my mirroring. You that know, just made me like emotional, actually. 
Me too. Right? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's, I guess what I'm talking to is something that's mm. part of a lot of women's experience and maybe men too, but for us, for this, mm -hmm. this cohort right here, we can all rel relatively agree that this is a very strong experience we've had. Mm. Well, and when does that become, you know, it's so unspoken, right? And, and I, this yes. is more of kind of a rhetorical question, but it's like, yes. I'm so curious at what point in a, in a young, and we'll just speak to women here, in a young girl's life, she takes on this role of the one that's going to be watching and caretaking and yeah. making sure mom is okay. Yeah. You know? And, and because of course it's never actually said that like, here's your new role. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, it goes back as far as I can remember. And as far as any of my clients can remember, like at what point do we decide to step into those shoes and say, yeah. this is it, this is my job. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, my grandmother who I called Gaga mm. and Gaga, I'm from the deep South. I was born in new Orleans, Louisiana. And and oh, so my family's from New Orleans too. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. Well, you might get this though, is that, you know, I had a grandmother who I was growing up and, and we'd be going down the road and, and, you know, in her car, whatever, and Papa might be driving and we're sitting in the back seat. I have memories of this. And mm -hmm. I would be complaining about somebody in class who was mean to me. Mm -hmm. And she would say, oh, we'll just, we'll just put the grigri on her, honey. We'll just mm. put the grigri on her. And I mean, everybody had voodoo dolls in my family. I mean, there was this like, you know, like the witch's brew, you know, and oh, I, mean, yeah. I was like, this, this shit is scary. Um, mm. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but that same grandmother said to me, I can remember it. She mm. would say to my mother, they called her sweetheart. She's mm. the one pointing to me. She's the one, sweetheart. She's the one that's going to take care of you. Mm. And so I was wow. cast from, I, not only was it implied, it was explicit. It was actually verbal. Right? Wow. It was explicit. I knew my job. And God, I took it seriously. Mm. You know, to the day that she died, I was holding my job. Yes. And, you know, that was into my 50s. So it was, it was... Like, I was doing lots of work for a whole lot of people and right. in many different ways. And I still wasn't addressing the thing that held my strings. Mm. And I was still a puppet to someone else's dance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God. I feel that so deeply, I gotta say, as a parent, because, you know, I do think there's this point, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Catherine, where like my, my child is three, and I feel like some of this watching how you're doing, this sensing what's happening for you is just like their connection to us, right? Like yeah. going through something hard and having my son like come in bed with me at night, like almost like caring for me. And, you know, nothing's spoken. He's not even three, yeah. but sensing yeah. somehow that I needed comfort. And I'm like, oh God, why, mm. why is he feeling this? How is this happening? How can um, he not? Yeah. Mm. How can I not? You're the mama. Yeah. yeah. Right. And there's something, I don't know. I mean, you guys, I'd be curious your perspective, but there's something explicit we can say that, that doesn't deny the human experience of caring deeply for for one another, you know, and the more that we sense are the people that belong to us, the more we care for more and more people. I'd like to say that we all belong to each other. Mm -hmm. And so we can begin to cast a bigger and bigger net around the ones that we think belong to us so that we take a step 
like I'm really into social impact right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I think that, wow, you know, I'm in my late fifties and I think, okay, what do you got? 20, 30 years? Like, let's go for it. You know, Mm -hmm. let's do everything we can to support marginalized communities. Every homeless person I see on the road, I look them in the eye and I try to connect Mm -hmm. so that there's that human bond of, I see you. I'm not sure I can solve your problems, but at least I'm going to let you know you are no different than I am. We are deeply connected. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one little bit. And I'd like to be able to do more bits. And, you know, that's a whole nother part of my world. But in any event, that sense of being able to let our children know, I love that you are connecting with me and you sense that I'm having trouble right now. And, you know, I'm a little bit low and I am so capable of taking care of myself. Mm. And both are true. I love the fact that you're connecting and empathic and you sense. And I just wanted you to know, I am so capable of taking care of my own feelings. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, I enjoy your connection and empathy, Mm -hmm. you know, but being able to say that out loud, man, that just makes all the difference. I think for words, probably to something that they don't even understand. They haven't even figured that out because at some level children are sensing you know, I can do something about this. It's my job. I can make mommy better um, or daddy better. And they start stepping into this world of thinking they created the feeling, which of course isn't true. Although people mix that up all the time mm-hmm. in terms of the language that they use. You make me feel, you know, like mm-hmm. the most hard words ever mm-hmm. spoken. You know, the greatest lie is that someone else is making anyone else feel anything. But mixing those up happens all the time. And boy, does that affect our internal world of Mm -hmm. sensing into who am I? And, you know, what is my power? Do I really have the power to go into other people and create their feeling realms? Or Mm -hmm. are they just reacting to me? And did they mix the two up? Yeah, I was thinking, um, I I say that a lot in the codependency work too, which is like, you know, part of the work as a codependent is learning to take responsibility um, for your own emotions and your own feelings, right? And and this idea that you can't actually create a feeling in anybody else. Um, You can react, right? Right. Um, And people, you're right, people do confuse those a lot. I mean, I do too, right? I think it's actually pretty normal for a lot of us to do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of our, all of our, all of our life, you know, mm-hmm. I think people have confused the two and not acknowledged that they're doing it. Right, right. Although I did hear, it was a funny a New Yorker I, I read the other day and it was like, um, she was a, a woman with the therapist and it was like a Freudian therapist and she's laying on a couch and she says, um, you know, I just don't understand, like, how does my mother understand how to push every single one of my buttons? And the therapist said, because she installed them. Yeah, she put them there. <laughs> exactly. So she's and that, I thought right was there in there. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that sums it up. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But, you know, Um, just circling back, I wanted to circle back to that comment about my, you know, saying that to my mom and her saying that, oh my God, your brother said the very same thing to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what would I say? It had probably been 10 years between when he had died and when I had that conversation. Oh. Yeah. Because there was 10 years between when my brother left and when my sister died. And so 10 years had gone by and it took me, you know, that long to even be able to share that with her because it felt like, again, a betrayal. Every time my truth came into it, it was going to rattle her. And so the things that I would do not to rattle 
until, you know, the self-betrayal became so overwhelming that there was something that, that pushed me harder Mm -hmm. than the rules of the family system to begin to speak my truth. And, um, and to realize from then through the next, you know, 20 something years, probably maybe 30 that, um, you can not get anyone to see anything. I mean, over the years I would come Mm -hmm. home and I would bring my entire program with me. And, um, and I would say, you know, mom, I'd really love to share this. This is my work. This is my work. And I think it would really support us in having, you know, deeper, more, um, more truthful conversations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and her reply was, there's nothing wrong with the way I speak. And that was (laughs) for me not to focus right on changing the other person Mm -hmm. and thinking that somehow Mm -hmm. I could do that. And it was like, okay, I get to just continue to love you just the way you are. Yes. And, um, and be able to be okay with just loving you the way you are Mm -hmm. rather than ever Mm -hmm. focusing my energy again on trying to make you see the light. Right. Which is so much of the work that we need to do, right. needs to be solely for us. It can't yeah. be for yes. the people around us because then yeah. it's really in vain. It is. It totally is. And I mean, <laughs> Jack Kornfield says that um, he, he had said this thing one time that I always remember because it makes me laugh every time he said, trust me when I say that when, when Buddha came home to his, pa- his parents, he was just Siddhartha and his mom told him to sit at the table and finish his meal. <laughs> and, she go, and he always goes, and when Jesus came home, you better believe that Joseph and Mary were like, we don't care who you think you are. Just <laughs> sit down, right? <laughs> like, you come home and it doesn't matter. Like you still fit right into that family role, you know, that is what you're so good. Is. So it yeah. was Ron Doss who said, so you think you're enlightened, you know, right. go home for the weekend. And the weekend yeah. with the family. <laughs> right. Wait till Thanksgiving. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, totally. But I do think it's interesting sometimes to witness. Um, I'm just thinking as you're sort of talking about your work and attempting to share it with your mother, how much that our healing can be so deeply activating for those mm-hmm. who have loved us, right? Mm-hmm. Like what is the, um, the work you're doing to heal mm-hmm. saying about me and who I was to you? And um, I feel like you speak to that in your work, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's so beautiful. And there's so much power in not feeling guilty about focusing on your own healing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've grown up in different family systems where doing anything where you focus on yourself is taboo. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. It's misunderstood as being selfishness. Um, If the family pattern is that the, the, the way that one um, focuses on others is how we are showing and being loving good people. Mm -hmm. Then the very opposite of that would be to focus on oneself. Mm. Again, the betrayal, you know, it comes up over and over again that we are betraying our family systems when we honor our own sense of self. Yeah. Even some of the, um, the messaging and certainly the implicit messaging that are like, if we, we stay in the mother daughter realm and I feel like Vanessa and I talk a lot and are sort of fascinated by this mother wound. Um, and so as we sort of, as women step into our power, how a lot of times Mm -hmm. that is holding up a mirror for Mm -hmm. our mothers, um, to the ways that they have sort of suppressed their own power or bought Mm -hmm. into 
patriarchal systems that have kept them small and that mm -hmm. sort of um you know owning that in themselves is more like it's, mm. it's not tolerable right it mm. and, and the reaction to that is so strong for that reason yeah i mean as you're speaking i'm thinking about i have a daughter mm. who is 21 years old and um and she's definitely been one of my teachers for sure mm -hmm. um and uh both my kids have my son as well as my daughter but my daughter has been a teacher of a particular type because she's so strong-willed mm. and so autonomous. And, um, and she and I had a conversation, I'm trying to remember, I can remember where it was, and she was probably 16 or 17. And she was angry with me. Mm. Uh, and I said to her, Pia, the conversation you and I are having right now if I had had this conversation with my mother when I was your age, mm. it would have changed my life. Mm. Right, because you said, I mean, you know, it took you until you were in your 50s to start doing that work. And when you think about, that's why I think this is so profound for people to listen to, right? Is it's like, and again, coulda, woulda, shoulda, your life turned out the way it turned out because, but also for those people who are listening, it's like, take that step. Totally. Mm -hmm. Take that step when you're in your 20s. Take that step when you're in your 30s. Um, you know, take it when you're in your 50s. There, it's right. never too late. Take the Absolutely. step. It's, right. it's so worth it. Right. And I just look at the, the numerous, like all the, you know, um, I, I really went into a lot of spiritual work mm -hmm. and I would just call it out. Mm -hmm. For those of your, you know, community that are, you know, really involved in the spiritual work, that it's beautiful work. Mm -hmm. And I found over the years in the communities that I've been associated with that there is a tendency to do process skipping. Spiritual like bypass. the spiritual bypass. We right. call it the spiritual bypass. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I've been in communities where spiritual bypassing is popular. Mm -hmm. right? And because you have the, um, the vernacular and you have the intellectual understanding mm -hmm. um, and you have the idealized self being mm -hmm. created all around you mm -hmm. um, that is super easy to fall into that world. And I think I probably did a fair amount of that for a while where it was like, focus on the light, focus on the light. I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on the light. I'm going to just keep focusing on the light. Yeah, the positive. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the dark side of the light chaser, you know, when I, mm -hmm. you know, came around to that work. Love yeah. that work. Oh, I love it. You know, Debbie Ford, man, she mm -hmm. was so yeah. great. She's amazing. She's amazing, mm -hmm. right? What she brought to the table. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just, I, I still turn to that book sometimes. It keeps mm -hmm. me laughing about how when we are focusing on the light, the shadow gets bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the real joy is when we can integrate the shadow and, you know, just be a part of integration mm -hmm. rather than forgetting about it or pretending it's not there, like somehow that's, that's even possible. Well, and you also miss out on half of the human experience. Mm, for right? sure. If they're in order to have light, you have to have dark. And so if yes. we're only focusing on the light, you're actually missing so much. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Totally. And, you know, for me, it was the, yeah, the conversations, I just think about who, who came along on my path and, 
and what that opened up for me. And, you know, one of the big ones was certainly Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent mm-hmm. communication. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, I was so blessed that I got to be one of the people who sat at his feet and learned from him. And he was extraordinary in his ability to say very simply and succinctly um, about this dynamic between thinking other people make you feel Mm-hmm. When that's so common, this idea of blaming, 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 blaming all the time other mm-hmm. people for how you're feeling and experiencing and thinking they're responsible for your, your reactions and all the rest of it. And he used to talk about having the ability to put on giraffe ears. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard this analogy, but he would say the capacity to put your giraffe ears on is your capacity to hear through your heart. Mm. with compassion. And so from that, you know, I talk about the tragic expression of unmet needs Mm -hmm. and that, you know, when people are expressing in ways that are socially unacceptable and obviously they're struggling, we tend to make it about us, the object of that experience, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the person who's experiencing their experience in socially unacceptable ways and wanting to be able to support them through it. And we get mixed up in the judgment around that. And this kind of brings us back to the parent-child relationship, Mm -hmm. is that we can get stuck on how dare you speak to me that way. Right. And, you know, and try to manipulate the way they are drowning and focus Mm. on drowning behaviors and getting them to be good drowners. So I always look at, I was an excellent drowner. Like I could hide anything inside and be able to create what was the socially responsible face so that I never embarrassed my mother. In public, ever. That was not acceptable. So, what will the neighbors think became sort of like a mantra in the family. Mm-hmm. And the focus was always on what other people think of me. Mm-hmm. And there was no space for drowning behaviors. And I saw when people couldn't learn and master how to drown um, politely in my family, you know, they got in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And so, learning how to, you know, drown politely really became a thing. Can you speak to that, like for people, you know, so in the work that you do, right, as part of what you do to give parents tools to be able to see when their children are drowning, right? And then, yeah, because I do think that we forget as parents that so much of our work um, is to, how do I say this? Uh, it's this idea that you're leading by example, right? Because they're watching and learning by what you're doing. And so if I don't know how to drown, Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to teach my child how to drown. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. so part of the work I'm assuming is not just teaching parents, here's how you teach your kids, right? Yeah. But it's also like, you need to know how to do it yourself. Absolutely. And you've hit it nails right on the head. We teach through example. Mm-hmm. And so if we are yelling, screaming, shouting, berating, um, totally unglued when our kids don't do what we want them to do, then yes. that's what they're learning. Mm-hmm. And this is not to shame anyone who's coming unglued. This is to say, you should think about, you know, how can I support myself before I start focusing on the other, Mm. right? We're back to the beginning, which is that it all starts here with me and my ability to regulate my emotions, my ability to diffuse myself, my ability not to be merged with, you know, what I'm feeling, but to be with the feelings. All of that internal work and the internal dialogue work is where we begin so that we can be the parents we want to be. 
mm-hmm. and support our children and not see their failure to be able to regulate their emotions as a crime against the nation that they need to be punished for, but mm-hmm. a response that evokes empathy, just evokes empathy. It's not like we have to think through to get to the empathy, but we are being with them in a way in which it's like, how can I help you? Well, and it's also developmentally appropriate usually, right? Yeah. I mean, I speak a lot of this again in the codependency work, which is a lot of times clients will have this reaction where they're able to very clearly remember a punishment, but they're not really able to remember what it was that they did that garnered that punishment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the research show that that has to do with whatever the thing is that they did was probably, they didn't, their brains didn't think of it as being wrong mm. because it was actually pretty developmentally on point for wherever they mm-hmm. were. Um, and that the punishment was probably a little bit too large. Well, Catherine, you, you sort of speak to that with your daughter and your dad and the most beautiful example yeah. in your TED Talk. That yeah. I love the way you describe that. And it really sort of brought me into this understanding that a lot of times children aren't even aware of what the it. punishment is about. Right. They don't understand. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I mean, and being with my dad, and I, I love not making somebody wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yes. so nice to just have that space to be that really big space where you can just appreciate where someone's coming from. And, you know, frankly, harm is done mm-hmm. if you come from that space, but we don't need to shame people from being, you know, that space. But, but yeah. And then the beauty of my father being able to say after a while to come back and say, um, honey, it's a better way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That to me just touched me so deeply. And, you know, what, what my, My message is, is that when we use rewards and punishments, we cultivate an external locus of causality, which is why when we have, you know, children that are behaving in ways that are socially unacceptable, like grabbing, hitting, you know, doing all the things that we certainly don't want them to do, Mm -hmm. how we go about supporting them is, is to create, you know, the tools, the skills, the teaching to give them the ability to change their impulsivity and also to recognize so much of the impulsive behavior is like developmentally up there, right on par. That's exactly what kids do, you know, and we need to create a safe environment, but not from this place of rewarding and punishing. And what we know from the research, Gordon's research was that when you use a controlling form of discipline, you activate retaliation, rebellion, and resistance, the three R's. And then we know from, Dr. Louise Porter's research that when you've activated the three R's, you spend 75% of your time dealing with that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like we have a a secondary problem world where the primary issues are not being addressed in ways in which we create the shifts and changes we want. Instead, Mm -hmm. we're addressing them in ways in which we create the three R's and the secondary problems are really where we're spending all of our time. And this applies not just in family systems, but we can see the, the micro and the macro mm-hmm. on this in all the different ways, you know, that people are acting out. Yeah. I love that you sort of speak to, you know, this way of working sort of raises children that are allowed to have a voice that are sort of yeah. seen as people. Because for me as a parent, that feels really liberating and that you can just feel so like, ugh, you know, where I can sort of say, like, if I meet my three-year-old as another person's, you know, and I constantly am like, you know what? Mommy was frustrated (laughs) and sort of circle back having a conversation with with him as a person versus like expecting myself to do life perfectly because I will not. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it just feels like, can I get on his level and actually connect and meet him as another person because he is right. Versus talking at him. I'm talking to totally. Yeah, no. And that's so beautiful. And, you know, the magic that comes through that with, with, you know, the acknowledgement that of course, you know, you're three-year-old, you're not going to go talk to about various things, but, Mm. but you are going to connect in ways in which you can say, you know, I was so frustrated and I was, I was being in a way that I wish I had been able to do differently and I'm not going to shame myself around it, but could we do a do-over, right? And give yourself permission so that this child also has permission to be able to lose it because his window is going to be shut. His bandwidth is not always going to be like this. There are going to be times when it's like this. Mm -hmm. And when we just understand bandwidth, then we have, again, more compassion Mm. And we're able to go, yeah, I can get it. I mean, we know when they're tired or hungry or all the rest of it, the way they behave reflects the fact that their underlying needs aren't being met. And if you begin to look through this model, the model of human behaviors are a reflection of underlying needs either being met or not met. Mm -hmm. If you look through that perspective, then you break out of the good, bad, right, wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's just, oh, wow. (laughs) I can see you're having a lot of trouble meeting your needs. Right. right. So it's that. Or, or trouble communicating to me what those needs are. Right. Or even, yeah, even right. knowing the words to use, which right. is why, you know, there is a whole vocabulary that needs to be created. And through this, you know, work that we're all doing, we're supporting families at learning the words to name it, to tame it, hmm. find the words that match just right and the more nuanced, right? Brene Brown talks about emotional granularity. Mm -hmm. So the granular, like the more granular you get, the better, you know, it feels Mm -hmm. because you've actually been so, so nuanced with the words you use that it goes, ah, yeah, that's it. That's That's the one. And then once you have that, you know, you can take each one of those as like messengers, guideposts. Every feeling is there. It's got a reason. It's got its own darn good reason. And it's not a good feeling or a bad feeling. It's just a beacon. It's like, where's it coming from? Something in me is sending this one. I wonder where that is in me. Yeah. I use the term flags a lot. You know, it's like, if you notice it and you can realize that it's it's a flag that's being waved, can you sit and just get curious about like, where is it? Like you said, where is it coming from? Yeah. It's trying to tell me something. Exactly. Rather than I need to push this away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, why are we so biased? Mm -hmm. Like, why do we like, we have a bias toward this one's a good feeling. I'll entertain it. This one, no, 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 not going to go there. Rather than just being the space. Yeah. To be able to turn to that one. Oh yeah. Interesting. Oh, there's one over here. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, and just being with, and the being with, of course, is, you know, that's the key because they all would love for us to be with them. Yes. So Catherine, is that the work then if like, say you're a parent and you have been in this pattern of sort of um, punishment and and reward Mm -hmm. and you sort of want to start to do something different, is that sort of how you transition into it? Yeah. So that's really the work, the work that I support families with. And, you know, it's, I'm finding I'm a lot of the work I'm doing, I do, I teach a group program, but in addition to that, I have families that would like extra support with their mm-hmm. family dynamics. And during COVID times, there was even more of that, right? Sure. Where more people mm-hmm. are not managing as well because there is physically less space. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and so I find that, you know, ultimately, 
Um, it's a lot about the kids. Like I had a, a kid that I work with today reach out and say to me, he's 18 and he said, my friend is having so much trouble with his parents, mm. right? You know, um, and I've been working with him and his brother and his parents and just supporting communication. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm a coach mm-hmm. and I can support people in learning skills and I can mm-hmm. direct them to great therapists and they can do work with those therapists. That's not what I do. Mm-hmm. What I do is I actually teach people communication and conflict resolution skills mm-hmm. and I support them in their relationship to their thoughts and their feelings and their relationship to their children's thoughts and feelings and even the way they see behavior. Mm-hmm. So that's where I get to challenge um, how, how we see our children and those underlying unconscious beliefs that are negative about our children that we don't even recognize we have. There's a prejudice mm-hmm. there right. that children are not people too. And I don't know what age they need to reach for them to be people, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not for And at four, they're supposed to be obedient and compliant and do as they're told rather than have a feeling inside that may not be um, the one you want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or that you're comfortable with experiencing in yourself, right? Yes, exactly. And it triggers you because you never got to have that feeling. Mm -hmm. And they're damn well not going to get to have it. I'll suppress it. I'll push it. I'll do, I'll even get irate Mm -hmm. and scare the living bejesus out of them. So, you know, when we use control, we're using fear as our fundamental reason and way of controlling our family. Mm. And very rarely is that what people consciously are hoping is the mechanism. I think people really just want everybody in the family to be considerate of one another. Right. But they don't, you can't get there without going through the stages of learning how to just, like you said, like, you know, melt down, explode, like have all these big, especially when you're three, four years old. I mean, kids do not know how to be. In well, that. I'll tell you, the ones I'm working with a lot are 17, 18, 19, 20, right. 21, and they don't know because they didn't learn it. They didn't learn it. Right. And so we have a whole world out there of, you know, what I call are the reactions to power having been used over them. In fact, one of the talks mm-hmm. that I did on TED was about the rebellions here. Yeah. And we created it. Yeah. And That's we funny. can also solve it. I know we can. It does have to start with compassion and understanding for the fact that we created the three R's. Well, but not just compassion and understanding. There has to be an acceptance of responsibility. Yeah, well, you have to start with, I did create it. You're right, I created it. Uh, yeah, something we have that to most of us struggle with. <laughs> <laughs> and even compassion in that, right? Like right. that I think, you know, witnessing a three-year-old constantly, they are like these little mirrors that just sort of hold up um, for you all of the things that you have sort of suppressed and you have been conditioned not to tolerate within yourself. And that is why I feel so desperate to control this in you, because I do not allow it within me. Absolutely. Can I hold myself compassionately around the three-year-old that I was that someone allowed to sort of act out at that time? Yeah. And, you know, um, I think every mom I've ever known is sat on a, you know, a stoop on the door step and cried when they couldn't get their child to do what they wanted. And, you know, it's such a, it's just like, oh man, I just, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I can do. And short of child abuse, um, I am pretty much just I get, I get to acknowledge that I have no control. And yeah. this is really hard. <laughs> yeah. 
right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's interesting about language. I was thinking about language when you were saying that, because I, I had a conversation earlier actually with my partner because um, we have noticed that even at six months old, we've noticed that my daughter is, um, she's such a morning person. She wakes up like just in the best mood and she's so sweet and so giggly. And you just kind of slowly watch it decline throughout the day, right? Until it's like 4 p.m. And we call her like she wakes up as gizmo. And by the time four o'clock comes, like the gremlin is full on, right? And I'm um, like, cause like he'll say like, oh, some water must've gotten on her somewhere. Like she's turning into a gremlin, right? <laughs> and this morning, he, you know, he, he said something to her like, um, oh, like I, what he said something like, I love you when you're like happy and smiling or something like that. And I, there was something about it and obviously he didn't mean it this way, but there was something about it where I just went, you know, I think we need to be cautious of our language like that because mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. that feels to me like is, but you don't love me when yeah. I'm a gremlin, right? Yeah. Like as using our kidding language. I mean, we joke about it, but and obviously she's only six months, right? This is my yeah. hyper, yeah. hyper sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Brain. Yeah. Yeah. I just said to him, I'm like, I get it. She's only six months, but let's just pay attention to that kind of language because I can mm-hmm. see how mm-hmm. at three years old or at four years old, I might translate that as, oh, you only love me when I act this way. Totally. Therefore, yeah. I should only act this way to get your love, right? Yeah, of um, course. God, you know, and I do. This guys, forgive yeah. me, my six month old, I'm already like, oh God. <laughs> I know, right? You'll be super sensitive to every little thing because of mm. your training and background. And yet you've brought up that we use praise as a weapon. Mm. Mm-hmm. So whenever anyone says, I'm so proud of you, I just, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> oh I mean, no. it truly, it just, it just, it, like, I become gonna... unglued around yeah. it. And it has that very same essence in it. Mm-hmm. And if a child is bright, they'll say, and what about if I don't do what you want? Mm-hmm. Well, then what? Then. Mm-hmm. then how do you feel about me? Are you not proud of me then, mommy? Mm-hmm. Right. Rather so, than so that's the be... praise. Well, can you praise in a way that praises them? Um, I'm trying to think of an example, right? Because I'm imagining being a parent and listening to this and going, so I can't do anything right. Like even well, if I what I'd like to kid. say to the moms and you know, out there yeah. dads is that the shift is small and yet it's powerful. And it's mm-hmm. the difference between praise and acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And so you're almost, you know, when we're going into the whole praise thing, again, you acknowledge within yourself, oh my God, I'm using praise like a remote control. And that's what I talk about in one of my TEDs, right? Is that we use remote controls on our television and we do the same thing with rewards and punishment. It's as if I can push this reward or this punishment and I can evoke a change in channel. And yet our children are not television sets or appliances. And therefore we're, again, failing to recognize that they're living, breathing human beings with feelings and needs. And that what we need to have is a conversation about, hey, what's going on for you? And I've noticed that, you know, when I ask you to turn the TV off, you get really upset. So I'm wondering, you know, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. And acknowledging that for them, they may just be using it as a way to just recover from their day at school. Okay, and that, I love that. if not that, they need some way to just chill out. I know there's a lot of negative research and there's also positive research and, and both are important to look at. There's a sense of kids going into a meditative state often when they're watching TV. And it really is a way for them to just zone out. Yeah. zone out. And some of them, I think it's a lifeline for them. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to just start randomly taking TV away or anything else that might be a lifeline that's supporting a child and just 
metabolizing the day, it's, it requires more than just taking things away. We do need to understand where this living, breathing human beings needs are being met through this activity. And if we want to substitute others that we think are, you know, better, okay, it's a conversation. It's not a, it's not forced on someone. I love that. I, you know, I heard someone else sort of speak to you and I don't remember where, what you're saying, but like, you know, that sometimes parents forget that like, this is something that this child has like dropped into this world. And if you all of a sudden come in and you're just like, it's off. It's like, how would you feel if you were in the midst of something that you were super invested in, really loving, and someone just like snatched it away as if there's no feeling connected to that. And then you're like, why are you having a tantrum about the television? Well, because they're a human being who has the experience. Yeah, my show. (laughs) Yeah. So I always, I like people to look at their Mm. children, you know, as people too. So sometimes that means you have to imagine them as the lady next door Mm. or imagine them as a beloved colleague or a friend or an aunt. And it might help for you to put that face on that child when you're looking at them and think, would I act like this toward that person? And more often than not, you would be humiliated to have acted or responded in the way you did. So it's a good way for us to start to look at these underlying, really, I think not considered negative views of children, but because of them, yeah, we think we need to use control and power. And F, absolutely, is that not true? No. However, we think it is. So I have a question for you, Catherine. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. I but, do too. This is so um, to do coffee, ladies. Right? We're in the <laughs> neighborhood. All right. Wow. I love it. Totally. Um, So say that everything you're saying resonates so deeply, completely have a buy-in in, you know, my child is a human being and I want to sort of speak to them like that neighbor. And I have a parent that just, you know, the person Mm. I, like my partner, my co-parent is not on that page. Like, what Mm. do you suggest there with parents? Like, how do you sort of- I have um, that happen all the time. And, you know, I've literally taught thousands of parents Mm. and oftentimes I'm just teaching the mom. I have had, you know, men as well take the course over the years, but their preponderance is women. And mostly you can imagine, because most women lead with empathy for the most part, right? Right. In terms of the world of traits. And I think the biggest thing for partners is that they think if you're not being stern and authoritarian, that you're being permissive in a doormat. Yes. (laughs) And so that's what I call out is that this is not about being a doormat. This is about teaching to a different goal. So the goal of an authoritarian is obedience and compliance. And the goal of someone using a guidance approach to parenting is consideration and thoughtfulness. Mm. They're different. It is easier to get someone to be obedient and compliant because you're using fear. And there's already a power differential between a parent and a child anyway. Mm -hmm. So you can use your power and control to activate fear responses, which may look like you're getting the behavior you want, but not for the reasons you wanted it. Wow. And if you explain that, and I can usually do this in 15 minutes, um, I can get people to change their mind immediately because they recognize what they want is consideration of their needs. Well, and a lot of times I imagine um, a lot of the stuff will hit home when I think about my own parenting and how I was raised Mm -hmm. and how I wish Mm -hmm. that I would have had consideration, right? Instead Mm -hmm. of the authoritarian type approach. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think 
in my experience working with men, especially, um, so much of the men that I do, you know, work with that have anger issues and, you know, can't communicate their feelings. And I'm not trying to paint broad strokes about men, but we know societally, right. We do yeah. not raise our boys to express their emotions. Absolutely. And when you look at the parenting styles, I mean, yeah. it's the writing's on the wall. It is. Time, right. And, not and you know, the mom, but it, it's the dad too, obviously it's this. Oh yeah. 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 And, and, you know, I remember like my course at the end, generally I would um, finish it off with a three hour time with just the dads. Cause mm -hmm. I usually have moms and some of them will come in the room, you know, with their arms crossed, arms crossed. And, you know, everything about their body language is I don't want to be here. Somebody made me come. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I never had the moms with their husbands. I just had the dads mm -hmm. and, um, and going around the room, I remember once where somebody said, you know, yeah, I was hit. So what? I'm fine. My relationship is fine. La, la, la. And I would just call that type of demeanor someone who's really not tuned in to how not fine they are. Right. And as we went around the room, another gentleman said, yeah, I was hit too. And my relationship isn't fine. In mm. fact, I would say it damaged our relationship permanently. And I don't ever want to do that with my kids. And that's like you know, boom, it drops into the room when you have someone tell the truth like that. Hmm. And it, psh, you can just feel the bullshit go straight out of the room. Because we all know what it feels like to be marginalized mm -hmm. and to not matter and to feel like we're invisible and that that's where we need to stay in order to honor the father. Mm. Wow. Well, <laughs> we could do this all day. Well, like, they're I mean, like, okay, but... now on that note... <laughs> Yeah, just yeah. amazing. Wow. Thank you so much, Catherine. This has I, been so great, you guys. Yeah, I like, like, uh, uh, thank you. I, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're like, please come to our homes, help us raise these children. Yeah, so beautiful. Oh. I just think these conversations are so powerful um, for us to have, you know, and even if you're not a parent, mm. um, I think all of this can, you know, can apply even in your romantic relationships. I think it can apply in your, you know, dynamics with your friends. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's communication. I don't it think it has to necessarily be it about a yeah. child parent relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And so much of what I speak about in co the codependent work is that codependence, because we don't have those skills, we use manipulation to attempt mm -hmm. to get our needs met, right? Mm -hmm. yes. And that's where you see things like uh, passive aggressiveness, for example, mm -hmm. rather than clear and direct communication. And so mm. I don't think this stuff pertains to just parents. And I think that mm. everybody should really do a little bit of work around this idea of nonviolent communication, mm -hmm. um, you know, conflict resolution. There's, there's mm -hmm. such, such value in this stuff. So I want to say thank you for the work mm. that you're doing. Um, you know, and thank you for, for coming and talking. Oh, about thank you guys so much. And yes, it is, it is good communication skills. And, you know, yeah. the work I've had a lot of people actually over the years who just are trying to parent their own internal child mm -hmm. and they're applying all of this to the inner dialogue work and how to be with themselves, right? And not play out the roles of the, you know, the shaming mother to their own feelings and all the rest of it. And so, yeah, these are communication skills that generally apply inward, outward, every dynamic. It's human relationships. Right. Yeah. Well, we have a little uh, lightning round of questions. A couple like. okay. questions. All right, go. So, Catherine, um, what breaks your heart? Oh, what breaks my heart is if I feel like I've damaged a relationship that I can't recover from. Mm. 
And what do you find yourself in a state of flow? So where, or where do you find yourself rather in a state of flow? What is flow for you? Mm. Um, the first time I think I really experienced flow was when I left law school after my sister died. And I finally um, started really honoring my sense that, you know, I'm going to call it, I listen to myself mm. rather than the other voices in my life. Mm, Beautiful. And when that happened, everything changed. Mm. Mm -hmm. Last one's a light one. What's your favorite food, Catherine? <laughs> <laughs> Mmm, my favorite food. Gosh, what do I find myself going back for? Probably chocolate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. To go to. Love that. <laughs> to go to. I'm like, yeah, it's wrong <laughs> with that answer. <laughs> um, Amazing. Well, Catherine, oh. I just feel like the work that you are doing in the world is such a gift. Um, oh, thank you thank for you. doing what you do. If people want to find you, where can they find you? And, um, yeah, they can go to the it's consciousparentingrevolution.com is my website. And I do have a free ebook people can download. And I'll send you guys a 10% a discount for your community if they decide they wanted to take the training. Oh, great. So we'll, and we'll put that link in the, in the show. Right yeah, you can so put it in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. And um, it's just a great compliment to therapy because yeah. now you're learning other tools great. and working them together. Oh, it's beautiful. It's magic. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Love it. Thank you so much great. for being here, Catherine. It's been so, nice so great. You. And we'll really get that coffee as soon as we're yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'd love that. All right. We'll talk right, to Catherine. each other later. All okay. right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Instagram at Vanessa S. Bennett and at Danae Logan Selkin.